Father, we just thank you so much for your kindness and your goodness. Lord, we just ask that you give us the grace and strength just to do what you've called us to do. That you give us the power to overcome, to have victory in all circumstances. We thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the name above all names. And that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are God. We just thank you for your goodness in our lives because you are so faithful, you are so true. There's just nothing we want more than to be with you, Lord. We thank you so much for your presence in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, uh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Good to see you all. Welcome. If you're new, I think, did we introduce ourselves? I'm David. That's my awesome wife, Trisha. Um, and, and thanks for coming. I, it sounds like a lot of people had difficulties getting here because of the accident. Um, but we're grateful that you guys could make it. And uh, thanks for, for uh, journeying with us, <laughs> uh, with, with everything, with the worship and everything. God is so good, isn't he? So today I'm, st I'm continuing on in this series that we've been in for quite a while, the Spirit series. Come on. And uh, this, this is something that I'm really passionate about. Uh, in fact, when I teach at the School of Ministry in Toronto sometimes, this is what they have me teach on. Not the stuff I'm necessarily teaching you today, but I just mean in general. It's on life in the Spirit. So this is just something that the Lord has really put on my heart for years. And I'm personally excited that uh, we're, we're on this series right now. Um, so what I, what I, if you haven't been here or, or if you have been... Um, Essentially, I've been talking about my, an urgency I have. <laughs> I gave a whole message a while ago on the three urgencies I have about the Holy Spirit. And the one that I'm kind of hitting on today, because we're setting out to do something in this series. We're setting out to do a lot of things. But one of the things is to address this first point I have. That, in my opinion, Christian theology in general has neglected the, the absolutely essential, crucial role that the Holy Spirit's played in the New Testament church and theology. Um, so, you know, we give lip service to the Spirit, but often he unfortunately gets neglected and left to the periphery. You know what I'm saying? And people get kind of nervous about the Holy Spirit if he actually shows up. And it's, it's kind of messy sometimes. Um, but part of the issue is that it's because of our neglect. There's so much misunderstanding that people have. And I think that's why a lot of people get nervous about the Holy Spirit, because they're just, you know, there's so many scriptures and theology on the Holy Spirit, and it was crucial to the understanding of the early church, yet um, today we don't really talk about him and the crucial role he plays in our faith. In fact, he lies at the heart of everything in the New Testament theology and our experience of God. Okay? And that's what I'm really setting out to do in this series, is to build a foundation about it, particularly with theology, because as we're seeing and as we're going to continue to see, the Spirit is absolutely crucial, absolutely crucial to our whole Christian existence, our whole Christian life from beginning to end. He, he does more, a lot of people, okay, he, you're born again by the Spirit and that's it. No, He empowers us for the entire Christian life from beginning to end. Life in the Spirit. That's why Paul says, walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, and so what I talked about, uh, oh, I wanted to make this point. <clears throat> the Spirit absolutely is absolutely crucial to every one of the themes that are at the center of New Testament theology. And here's just four major ones. You'll see they're major. 
In fact, you could argue maybe that this, these are the center of, of Christian theology together. The first one is he's an, a crucial part of the essential framework of the New Testament, of the whole Christian life, which is eschatology. And for those of you who don't know what that means, it simply means the end. When we're talking about the end times, the, the end, capital E-N, means eschaton. And so we're talking about the end of time. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, we're going to talk more about that today. We started that last time. We're going to continue on that because it's so important. He's also an important part of salvation in Christ. He's a, a crucial part of our experienced dimension of salvation, which we're going to talk about in subsequent weeks. The main goal, arguably, is that God's creating a people for his name. And the Spirit pray, plays a crucial role in what it means to be the people of God. And we're going to be talking about that someday, too. And then the overarching reality to everything is the glory of God. The Holy Spirit plays a crucial role in every one of these elements. And so last time, if you weren't here, that was June, whatever two weeks ago was, 25th maybe? I don't know. June 26th. Is I, t I started talking about this idea that, that the Holy Spirit plays a crucial role in, in the early church's eschatological framework. Now, that's a fancy pants word, but those of you, if you were here at the beginning of the year, uh, I give a whole series on this, on the kingdom of God, okay? So if you're interested, you could go to our website, ctfottawa.com, and hear all about this, the kingdom of God, okay? But the point is, so you're going to see there is some review and overlap today because this is so important for understanding the whole New Testament. In fact, salvation in Christ is to be understood within this framework. You need to have a grasp of this framework to understand the whole New Testament. Okay, because the New Testament writers in the early church all had this same eschatological framework, end time framework they were working from. And that motivated everything they did. Okay, we'll talk more about that today. But what I talked about last time is that from their, this comes from their Old Testament heritage. They all had this same idea of what was going to happen when the end came. If you, if you think about it, the Old Testament always has this forward work, look rather. Okay, and we talked about the second uh, message in the series, if you're here, on how the whole story is about the lost presence of God and the restoration of the presence of God. So they had all of these promises of this new covenant, of this kingdom that was going to come with it. God would come, bring an end to this present evil age that Satan has dominion over, and bring in his kingdom. And they thought the end was going to be the, the end. That there's going to be a complete overhaul of Satan, sin, sickness, disease. All that stuff was going to go away like that. Then God's kingdom would be ushered in. And that's when the end would come. Okay? But it didn't quite happen that way. <laughs> and what we talked about is that the crucial part the spirit plays in all this is that they were, the, the one, we're, and we're, we're going to focus on these two things today, the two things, the two things that they were looking for that would totally be evidence that the end came is the resurrection from the dead and the gift of the Holy Spirit, okay? Because what happened is if you look at, like, say, for instance, these prophetic promises about the new covenant, like Ezekiel 36, he explicitly links the new covenant to the spirit. I'll put my spirit in you and motivate you to keep my laws. And then Ezekiel 37, it's the valley of dry bones where he resurrects these dry bones by his spirit and they're raised from the dead. 
And so they are waiting for these two things that would happen. Because when God came and ushered in his kingdom, these two things were going to happen. And then for 400 years, it was the time of the quench spirit. The Holy Spirit left. You read this in Ezekiel 10. The Holy Spirit left the temple. Jerusalem got sacked. The temple was demolished. And they went into this time of devastation. And that's why there's no books in your Bible between Malachi and John the Baptist. Because they believe that the Spirit left. There's no more prophetic voice in the land. So then what happened is in Joel, there's prophecies like in Joel. Joel 2.28. In the last days, I'll pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. You guys know it. That became totally eschatological. Meaning they said that was what... When the the kingdom of God came, when the day of the Lord came, that's what was going to happen. The Spirit was going to come back. And everybody would be filled with the Spirit. That's why he says, all flesh, your sons and daughters will prophesy. All flesh. So that was what they were waiting for, the Spirit to come back. And that's why he's so important to their understanding of what happened when the Spirit came back. So we talked about last time how the Holy Spirit was essential in fulfilling these at least three related promises or expectations that everybody had. The first is the association with the Spirit with the New Covenant. If you're interested, you can listen to the last message we went into that. The language of indwelling and the association of the Spirit with the imagery of the temple. We're going to talk all about that in the future. Okay, but we introduced that last time. But the point is by fulfilling the New Covenant and the renewed temple promises, the Spirit became the way that God is now present with us on earth. That's why it's so significant that the Holy Spirit came back. Okay? Because God's presence was restored to his people. So, on that note, and this is why salvation in Christ is to be understood within this framework, but we'll, we'll, get, it, we'll get to that. What I wanted to focus on today is to discuss this in more detail. Because like I said, this, the reason I spent so much time in this with the, with the Kingdom of God series and why I'm, I'm uh, bringing it back to this in this series is because this understanding is so crucial for understanding the New Testament. A whole bunch of mysterious verses come, are, are a lot easier to understand when you realize they had this perspective. Okay, so what I wanted to do is discuss this perspective that the early church had um, that totally conditioned everything about them. Everything they thought in terms of this perspective. Their theology, their ethics, everything was to be understood by what we're going to talk about today. Okay? Okay. Um, And I'm going to talk about the two essential eschatological events, end-time events, that resulted in this perspective, which I already alluded to earlier. Okay, so the first point, that the Spirit is the key to the early church's quote-unquote already not yet eschatological perspective. The essential framework of the whole New Testament, the Spirit is the key to this. Okay, and we'll see why. So, um, The coming of the kingdom with Jesus and the Spirit resulted in a radically altered end-time eschatological perspective. They had to change their ideas. Because like I said, they were expecting the day of the Lord to be like a day of the Lord. To be a bam, end of history, Satan's done with, demons are done with, sickness is done with, sin is done with. And it was going to be the kingdom of God and that was it. Okay? So that's what they were expecting. But then Jesus came totally Totally, totally, totally different than what they were expecting. A humble servant, fisherman from Nazareth, not fisherman, servant from, uh, carpenter from Nazareth, rather. And they totally, like Jesus, totally didn't fit their expectations. 
Yet he had the audacity to say, hey, look, I'm him, and the kingdom of God is here right now. You know what he uses evidence that the kingdom is here? You see it throughout. In fact, John the Baptist says, one, the one who's coming is going to baptize you in what? The Holy Spirit and fire. Why? Because when the Holy Spirit came back, that meant that the day of the Lord came. That's why when Jesus was casting out demons in Matthew 12, he said, if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then what? The kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay? So that's why the Spirit was so crucial. That's why Jesus was the ultimate. Think about what happened when he got baptized in the river. What happened? Heaven opened. What Then what happened? The Spirit came and, and baptized Jesus. And then he said, this is to fulfill all these Old Testament prophecies. The Messiah was going to be the ultimate man of the Spirit. You read this in Isaiah 11, 1 to 3. Isaiah 41, verse 1. Isaiah 61. And, and when Jesus starts his ministry, he goes to his home synagogue in Luke 4, and he says, I'm him. He rolls out the scroll. You guys know it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, the right? All that stuff. He's saying, I'm that guy. I'm the ultimate guy of the Spirit. I'm your Messiah. And he says, this is fulfilled in your hearing. So what's interesting about that is he said, the kingdom of God is fulfilled now. But then there's a whole bunch of future promises that he gives, and he says, yet it's going to happen in the future. Okay? So the, a lot of the time we spent in the kingdom series was trying to reconcile this already not yet perspective that I'm talking about today because it's so crucial. The kingdom's here, yet it's not yet. And that is so foundational for understanding the New Testament. It's not even funny. Okay? So what happened is that the, the Old Testament had all these prophecies about the latter days, the latter days, the latter days, the latter days, the latter days. Now when the kingdom of God was going to come. What happened is then the Spirit came with Christ and the Christians had no other option than to rethink their theology and say, wait a minute, that means what? We're in the latter days because the Spirit's back. And that's why in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, what does Peter use to explain what's happening? He says, this is to fulfill what Joel the prophet said, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And he goes on and quotes Joel too. Why is that significant? He's saying those pro the kingdom of God is here by the spirit. All those promises we've been waiting for are happening now. This is fulfilling that. We're in the age of the kingdom of God. The age of the spirit, if you will. Okay? So, this is all now fulfilled in Christ and the Spirit. I already said a lot of this, so I'm going to move on. But one thing I do want to say is this. Because God had already manifested his kingdom in Christ, we can now experience his kingdom now, already, in the present. Uh, next slide, please. However, the end had only begun, and that's the key. We're living in the last days. We're in the time of the end. But we're, the fullness of the end has not happened yet. We're already there, but we're not yet there in the fullness. And that's something we have to reconcile. Okay, and that's what they had to grapple with and what they had to reconcile. 
We're still awaiting the final event, which is the second coming of Christ. You know how we're thinking it's going to be when Jesus comes back, the book of Revelation? That's how they thought it was going to be the first time he came. That's why they missed it, a lot of them. Because they're expecting God to come overthrow his enemies, bash their heads in, and Jesus came loving his enemies and saving people. That's why even John the Baptist missed it. And he's like, are you him or are we expecting someone else? Because he was so different than what they thought. Okay, so, that, so what happened is right now, according to the early church belief, we are in the last days. Okay, and I'm going to show you that in a minute. So the kingdom is already not yet. Jesus coming set the future in motion, quote unquote, the future kingdom. Okay, it's set it in motion, but we have to wait the final consummation. We're living in between the two times, the two, res- the two comings of Christ, essentially. The last days is already here. It's not yet here. And so the key point is, as Christians, we're called to be living the life of the future now in the present evil age. That's the key. And this is, if you've been in the, if you're here for the kingdom of God series, I gave this graph for you visual people, that the fall happened, sin entered in, became known as Satan's age. And this language developed between Malachi and John the Baptist. This age and the age to come. They, they thought of this age as Satan's age. And you see this language in the New Testament still, that he is the, he's the God of the air, the, the, right? He has dominion over this age. So they, they said, okay, there's so much sin, there's so much injustice, there's so much unrighteousness, there's so much sickness, this is Satan's age. But when God comes on the scene and the day of the Lord comes and all these promises about the last days come, then it's going to be the kingdom of God. God's going to overthrow Satan, overthrow his enemies. The Spirit was going to come back and be the age of the Spirit. And all sickness and disease and sin and everything would be done away with completely. But they, have to, they had to change that and be like, okay, wait, the kingdom came with Jesus Christ and the Spirit, but we're still experiencing all this bad stuff, right? How do you reconcile that? It didn't happen like we thought. There's still sin, sickness, disease, injustice, unrighteousness, yet the Spirit's here. Jesus came. How do we deal with this, okay? So how they reconcile this is like, okay, it's already here, but it's not yet here, and we're still awaiting the final consummation when Jesus comes back. So we're already living in the beginning of the end times. This is what they thought. Okay, I'm not saying this is, this is what they thought. And I think this is so crucial. If we always look at them and like, oh, if we were like the early church, if we, what, what made them so special? Why did, why could they go, why did they overthrow the whole world in a matter of years? They overturned the whole world, Paul and the apostles. What was it that motivated them? I believe this is a key, key, key component that's different that they had that we'd miss mostly, that they believed that they were totally God's end-time people living the life of heaven here now in the present evil age, and we're supposed to people, show people what heaven's like. That's the whole point, that God's kingdom is already here, people. Okay, that's the good news. God has broken into history, and his kingdom is here, and we're in the end times. They had that sense of urgency, but it's 2,000 years removed they, I'm guessing they would have no clue that it was the eschaton was going to last 2,000 years, the day of the Lord. You know what I'm saying? Like, wouldn't you be surprised if we were still here 2,000 years from now? 
They thought Jesus was coming back any moment. You can see this. I'm going to show you a couple of scriptures. They, you can tell they thought this. That's why there was such an urgency that they had. That, okay? So they live between the times. Already the future began. Not yet had it been completely fulfilled. So from the New Testament perspective, the whole Christian existence and theology has this eschatological tension as its basic framework. I'm going to just show you just a few scriptures. I spent a lot of time on this in the Kingdom of God series. I'm just going to, for those of you who weren't here, show you a few. Look at this. This is Paul here, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culminations of the ages had come. Remember this age and the age to come. He's saying that the ages have come to us now, us, God's people. We're living in that time. Galatians 1, 3 to 4. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from what? The present evil age. According to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's, here's another passage. He's making a different point, but you're going to see why I'm showing you this. This is Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. It's impossible for those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, look at this, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and what? The powers of the coming age already. That's what he's saying. If you're... He's using all these descriptions of if you're, if you're a Christian, you've experienced the Holy Spirit. You've experienced the powers of the age to come. Right now in the present evil age. Already. We're experiencing the future. Okay? We're experiencing heaven now. So the old age is still present. Yet God's people already experience the powers of the age to come now. And we're supposed to be living as God's heavenly people on earth showing people what heaven's like. That's the kingdom of heaven, right? Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Jesus says, when you pray, pray what? Our Father in heart in heaven, I will be your name. You're what? Kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're supposed to be showing people what heaven's like. Heaven come right now. No sick. That's why sickness, disease. That's what Jesus did, overthrowing Satan, his whole ministry. Healing, casting out demons, the overthrow of Satan started with Jesus Christ. And we're supposed to continue that ministry, showing people what heaven's like. Because when the kingdom of God comes, there's no disease, there's no sickness, there's no sin. And that's the key to living the Sermon on the Mount, too. Anyway, the two essential events. Why is it that they thought that... that we're living in the last days. And I already mentioned this, okay? But this is crucial. You ever wonder what, like, look, okay. So the future is absolutely certain. There's no doubt. You see this. Christians had such a confidence that the future is super certain. What made them so confident? These two things. Their certainty was based on these two end time, eschatological realities, that it were already present, and therefore guarantee the future. These two things I mentioned earlier was what all the Jewish heritage, people who were from the Jewish heritage believed were going to be the signs that the end was here. What is it? The resurrection of the dead and the gift of the Holy Spirit. When the day of the Lord came, these two things were going to happen. The dead will be raised and the Spirit will come back and will be in the age of the Spirit. Okay? Do you ever wonder why, why is it the resurrection so important? Why, why did they make such a big deal out of the resurrection? You ever wonder that? How many of you have seen the, the movie uh, Case for Christ or read the book? How many? Anyone? No? <laughs> Just me and Trisha. <laughs> well, this, no one will mean any. Oh, a couple? Okay, cool. Thanks. All right, so you guys will get this. Do you guys remember what the one thing 
when, when he wanted to disprove Christianity, what his friend told him? He said, if you want to disprove Christianity, this one thing will disprove it. The resurrection is the, to- the kingpin of the whole entire faith. And so he went after the resurrection. Why is that so important? Why did they bank off of the fact Jesus raised from the dead? Why is that so crucial? Because of this eschatological perspective that when the end was here, the dead will be raised, and therefore the resurrection already happened in Christ. The sign is guaranteeing that our resurrection is inevitable. Okay? So it's so important for our faith for that reason. Through the resurrection of Christ and the gift of the Spirit, God himself had set the future in motion. The last days are here. So that everything in the present is determined by the appearance of the future. Everything. The resurrection of Christ marked the beginning of the end and the turning of the ages. So I'm going to spend a couple minutes on this. I already mentioned some of this, but the resurrection, remember, is a future event. The Old Testament, always looking forward to this. That when the resurrection happened, the end of this year. So we'll, yeah, I already said all this, so I'm going to move to the next slide. The resurrection has already happened. That's the key. That's why Paul was so, what happened when he was saved? What did he tell? I saw the risen Lord. Wait a minute, that means the resurrection already happened. <laughs> Paul had to go into Arabia to totally figure everything out because this was crazy to him. You mean to say the resurrection already happened with Christ? The implications of that are crazy. That means we're living in the last days. The risen Christ. Okay? So, because the resurrection now our resurrection hasn't happened yet but because the resurrection already happened our resurrection's guaranteed okay and that's what the good news is jesus raised from the dead why did they make such a big deal of that because that means all these promises that we've been waiting hundreds of years for happening in our midst and that means it's a matter of time okay Jesus secured both the present and the future to those who are his. Now, I'm going to just read to you a short portion of Scripture showing this. This is from 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 19. For the dead are not, if the dead are not raised, look at this, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. That's how important the resurrection was, right? You're still in your sins, those who have, uh, the, and then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ. Look, we are of all people most to be pitied. We're pitiful Christians if the, Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. Our whole entire faith is banking off this, essentially, that he raised from the dead. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits. Notice that language. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, he repeats that. Then when he comes, those who belong to him, meaning we'll be raised, then what? Then the end, the culmination, the consummation will happen. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. I want to I already emphasize this, but the first fruits of the resurrection. By using this imagery, Paul's saying that the resurrection of Christ makes our resurrection both inevitable and necessary. 
inevitable because he's the first fruit. So in other words, he set the whole process in motion. Resurrection's already happened with him. And those who are his already secured by his resurrection. Think of the language. He's the first sheep of the final harvest. When everyone's raised from the dead, that's the final harvest. He's the first fruits of that final harvest. We, this is Romans 6, 4 to 5. We therefore are buried with him through baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life here and now in the present. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this. And it's guaranteed is what he's saying. It's certain. Because Jesus is raised, ours is inevitable. Now ours is necessary because death is also God's enemy as well as our enemy. It's not just our enemy. It's God's enemy. It It was a distortion of what his original intentions were with the garden. Death entered in. Sin entered in. And that's his, it says, final enemy that he's going to overcome. Okay, so this is 1 Corinthians 5, 25 to 26. For he must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And our resurrection spells the end to death. That's why it's inevitable. It's going to happen because God's enemies are going to be overthrown. Guaranteed. Okay, so death is going to cease to exist when we're raised from the dead. So believers therefore live between the times in regard to the resurrection. Again, already not yet. We've already been raised with Christ. You notice that language throughout the Bible. If you've been raised with Christ, you've been raised with Christ. Past tense. That's because it's so certain you've already technically been raised with Christ in a sense. So so this guarantees our future uh, bodily resurrection. This hope for the future comes from the Holy Spirit, okay? You're probably like, what does this have to do with the Holy Spirit? You're going to see. It's totally connected. Who is the evidence that the future is already present and the guarantee of its consummation. So the beginning of the end, the Spirit is the evidence of the presence of the future. This is why the Spirit is so important for understanding this whole New Testament theology and eschatology. The Spirit makes a huge difference in how they lived, what they thought, their theology, everything. It was all based off the Spirit. Okay, so the Spirit was the crowning evidence that the end time promises of the Old Testament are being fulfilled. And I have a reference up there, Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. For the early church, the Spirit was the clear evidence that the future had dawned. I already talked about this. In Acts chapter 2, that's what he references. Is Joel 2.28, we are in the last days because he's pouring out his Spirit upon all flesh, is the implications. This truth is illustrated by three metaphors in particular. And I want to just briefly go over these because these are so important. And you'll see if you think about what these metaphors are saying, they are saying this, this whole thing I've been talking about, the already not yet. Okay. All of that is implied in these metaphors that Paul uses for the Holy Spirit. These are the three. He's the down payment, the deposit, the pledge, depending on your translation. What's a down payment? That means this is the first initial payment guaranteeing the full payment is going to happen. Okay? The seal and the first fruits. And we're going to go, I'm going to show you all the scriptures and, and explain them further in a minute. So all of these, think about this, are eschatological images of the presence of the Spirit guaranteeing the future. That's the whole point. Already but not yet. That's the significance of the Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, you are saved because that means you are part of the people of God, part of His kingdom. So each emphasizes the Spirit is either present, evidence of future realities, or is the assurance of final glory or both in these metaphors. Okay, so down payment. The Greek word Erebon essentially is what we would, 
It's not a perfect uh, translation down payment, but that's essentially what it is. It's the first installment of a final huge sum of payment for something in particular, okay? So um, it's the first installment of a total amount due, and that guarantees the rest of the payment, okay? It's a done deal once you have that. The Spirit is God's down payment and His pledge into our lives of the absolute certainty and reality of the future. That's why we experience the future now by the Spirit, the age of the future. We're supposed to live as God's children, and the Spirit produces God's character in us. All of Christian ethics is based off this premise. This metaphor emphasizes the already and the not yet of the present existence. And here's just some scriptures for you. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22. Now it's God who makes both you and us stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set a seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit. That's the word down payment. Guaranteeing what's to come. Notice that's the whole point. The spirit is a down payment which guarantees what's to come. The future, the fullness, the consummation is going to happen because you have the spirit now. 2 Corinthians 5.5, 5. now the one who's fashioned us in this, uh, for this very purpose is God, who's given us the spirit as a deposit, down payment, guaranteeing what's to come. Same language, right? Different scripture. Ephesians 1.13-14, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, what happened? You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And the, what, what do you mean promised Holy Spirit? If you remember we talked about this last time, he's saying the, the, the promised Spirit and all these Old Testament promises that he was coming back. That's what this is saying. The promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. He's guaranteeing our resurrection. He's the down payment. First fruits. First, this, this is the other metaphor Paul uses. The first sheaf in God's pledge to us of the final harvest. Okay? And if you remember, this is the same metaphor he uses for Christ's resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, and 23. The guarantee of our resurrection. The first fruits. This reflects the tension of the present existence is already not yet, if you think about it, and the guarantee of our, our certain future. So check this out. This is interesting. And I'm going to show you something. You might be like, what are you talking about already not yet? Now, if you're in the Kingdom series, you know what I'm saying, because I went through like a million scriptures on it. But I'm going to show you this one to illustrate my point. Because when you grasp this, that this is the perspective they're coming from, the New Testament opens up and you understand a lot of mysterious things that seem contradictory. And I'm going to show you one right here. This is Romans 8, 22 to 23. You know that the whole creation has been growing as the, in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have what? The first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Okay, you notice he's talking about the resurrection. The Spirit's the first fruits, guaranteeing that. But what I want to point out is notice this. He's saying we are waiting for our adoption. What's that saying? We haven't yet been adopted. Is that not what he's saying? We're waiting for the adoption. Now, rewind, what is that? Not even 10 verses earlier. Look at what he says. This is Romans 14, 17 now. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the, Spirit of, are the children of God now already. Okay? Already we're the children of God if you're led by the Spirit. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received, past tense, brought about your adoption 
to sonship. Wait a minute, I thought you said that we're waiting for adoption. Now he's saying you've already been adopted if you have the Holy Spirit. You see that? Already you've been adopted, not yet you've been adopted. We're living in between the times of the fullness. By him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are, present tense, children of God. Now, if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings now in the present tense, in order that we may share in his glory, not yet. See that tension? Already not yet. Already your son's not yet, or you're not son, or you adopted, rather. Because that's when the fullness is going to happen, when we're raised from the dead. The seal, last but not least. What's a seal? You guys have seen scrolls in movies where there is, you see the wax, and then there's a signet ring that stamps it that shows it's the authenticity of the person sending it, okay? It's signaling ownership, authenticity, and carrying with it the protection of the owner. This is a, you think about how interesting these metaphors are, describing the Holy Spirit. The seal is the spirit by whom God has marked believers and claimed them for his own present and future. That's why Paul calls them the seal. You have the seal of God if you have the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing you're his, that's the one thing that guarantees you're saved is if you got the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22. Now it's God who makes both of us, you and him, stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit on our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. We, we already read this, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. But I just want to point out, you were marked with him, in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. You see that? Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance? You're sealed with the Spirit. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You see that? You're sealed. That means the day of redemption is guaranteed. Already, but not yet. And the interesting thing is the Spirit plays an integral part of our resurrection. Now, there's some controversy over this. Not controversy, but different perspectives if you look at scholarship. It doesn't really matter other than to say either way, the Spirit plays a crucial role in our resurrection, our final resurrection. The one major thing that's not yet, as we've seen, is our resurrection, right? And the Spirit plays a key role in the pledge of this future resurrection. And this is not made any more clear than Romans 8.11. I'm going to read from verse 9 because I want to show you how crucial the Holy Spirit is. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. Someday we're going to talk about the Spirit-Flesh contrast, because that's what he's showing, is the realm of the Spirit, the age of the Spirit, you're living in that now. You're no longer in the age of the flesh. You've crucified the flesh, Paul says in other places. Anyway, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ do not belong to Christ. Right? That's how crucial the Holy Spirit is. He's saying that's the one identity marker of whether you're saved or not. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not saved. You don't belong to Christ. If you have the Spirit, that's the seal. That means you are saved. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body's subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit, look at this is where I'm going. If the Spirit of him who what? Raised Christ from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. You see that? Now the controversy is whether that saying the Spirit was an agency or whether he raised Christ from the dead or not. It doesn't matter. Either way, the point is he's guaranteeing that we're going to be raised from the dead. That's what it's saying. It says that, our, that we can be certain our bodies will be given life because the Spirit lives in us. Okay? 
So this is confirmed also, if you remember from the metaphors we went over, down payment of first fruits, that's what it's saying. Guaranteeing the redemption of our bodies, our adoption to sonship. So for the early church, why am I saying that? This is so important to understand. For the early church, all of present life is conditioned by this twofold reality. Everything. That's why Paul always goes back to this. Okay? The spirit is evidence that you're saved. The resurrection evidence you're saved. That through the resurrection of Christ and the gift of the spirit, God has set the future of motion in motion so that we're already citizens of our homeland, which is heaven. Yet we live out that future right now in the present tense, showing people what heaven's like. That's the whole point. We're supposed to live as God's end time people, showing people what heaven's like. Heaven on earth. It's the resurrection of Jesus in which God gave death its final blow and God himself overturned the power of death. In the resurrection of Jesus, God stepped into our human history and began the future guaranteeing our future. It's good news. So that we are now marked by eternity driven by eternity, by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But with the resurrection came the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit's the down payment of our future inheritance. He's the seal of the day of the Lord that's to come. He's the first fruits of the final realization, the already but the not yet. They go together. So within this already not yet framework is the spirit is the key element of the coming age, right? We talked about that. The spirit's back. That means the age to come is here, and we're living that age right now in the present tense. By the spirit's presence, believers taste of the life to come and become oriented towards its consummation. The future is as sure as the presence of the spirit is an experienced reality in our lives. The spirit is so important. And we talked about that, how important the presence of God was. That's the one thing that distinguished the people of Israel is that they were the people of the presence of God. First in the tabernacle, then in the temple. Then the temple got destroyed. That's why it's so devastating. Then the presence of God became restored with us. And that's why Paul calls us the temple of the Holy Spirit now. Us as a gathered community are the temple of the Holy Spirit because we're the people of God and we have the presence of God. That's what distinguishes us from everyone else on earth, the presence of God. So what should we do in light of all this? What's the point? Why does this matter? And that's a question I want to ask, because I, I realize this is theology. This is, uh, you know, and you might be like, why am I listening to you right now? <laughs> I want to tell you what I, th- I have already kind of alluded to this. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Why are you wasting, not wasting, why are you telling, spending all this time telling us about this already not yet perspective? And I'm going to tell you why it's not a waste of time. <laughs> I want you to think about this. Why does theology matter? In the final analysis, we, we live out what we most truly believe. Beliefs matter a ton. You believe God is out to smite you is going to totally influence how you relate to God, isn't it? If you think he's out to get you and he's, he's going to put his wrath on you if you mess up, totally matters. Everything we believe matters. If you think Jesus is coming back tomorrow, that's probably going to influence how you live today versus if you don't think he's coming back tomorrow. What we believe is going to influence everything in our lives. So having right beliefs is super crucial. Having right beliefs is super important. Okay? Now, it's not a matter of right or wrong, but getting back to what the early church believed is important. Okay? Because how many of you believe the apostles were inspired? by the Holy Spirit. That's the foundation of the church. Okay, isn't it? Don't you think it'd be important to have the same beliefs they had? Right? Yeah. 
So if this was the framework they were working from, how many of you believe it's probably important that we come from the same framework? The challenge is we've been 2,000 years removed and we've lost that sense of urgency. We've lost that sense of urgency that they had that we're living in the end times now as God's end time people, heaven to earth, okay? So there needs to be this more thoughtful of theolo- reflection on theology all the time, I would argue, for that reason, okay? Um, not theology for its own sake, not head knowledge. I'm talking about theology as the proper basis for all Christian life and behavior, okay? Now, the one thing that distances us from the New Testament church more than any other, arguably, is their eschatological perspective. The stuff I've been talking about. The stuff I spent almost a whole series talking about in the kingdom of God. Okay? This is probably the one thing that distances us most from them, and it was Jesus' number one message. (laughs) You're here for the kingdom of God. That's the thing he talked about the most. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is already here. It's not yet here. How do you reconcile that? We have to, the early church did. They got their clue of this perspective from Jesus himself, his main message. They're already not yet perspective about the end times condition. Everything about them, everything about them, everything. I'm not exaggerating. It's the foundation, not the foundational concept of the New Testament, the foundational framework from which everything fits in, including salvation in Christ. We're going to talk about that more in the future, but I'm laying a foundation here with this. How they lived, how they thought, understood their own place in the present world is all determined by this perspective. So we need to figure out how we're going to come to terms with this crucial place that differs so much from us. How do we, 2,000 years later in the 20th century in our culture, get back to their perspective? That the day of the Lord's here, we're living in the last days. That's good news. How do we get back to that? Okay, and we have to somehow grasp what the New Testament Christians experienced and understood about their experience. A few weeks ago, you might remember, I talked about the importance of experiencing the Holy Spirit. It's such a crucial factor. And Paul appeals to their experience as a basis of their salvation in, in Galatians 3, 1 to 5. Okay, so the framework within which they lived out their lives in Christ. This is how they transformed their world. You read that in Acts, it said these are the people who turned the whole world upside down. The gospel was preached to all of Asia in a matter of years. How is it? Because they lived in this. They lived in this. And they believe Jesus is coming back any time now. And we are supposed to show the world and tell the world the good news that the kingdom is here now. That we're living the kingdom now. That heaven has invaded earth. And you can come join the party if you want. This perspective influenced their entire theological outlook. How they thought and talked about Christ, salvation, the church, ethics, the present, the future, and we're going to be talking all about that in the future, all this stuff, ethics, everything. Because what, what are they, the laws not done away with? Well, how, how do you do righteousness now? What does Paul say? By the Spirit. Everything's determined by this perspective. The essential framework caused the first believers to see the church as an end-time community whose members live in the present, though stamped with eternity. Look at this. Philippians, I was going to give you more on this, but Philippians 3.20.21 says it all. But our citizenship is in heaven, period, already. That's where we live. We're strangers in the present evil age. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await, look at this, already but not yet, eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body, not yet. Already, not yet. 
So our true identity is that we are citizens of another world and we live in the present world as a colony of heaven. Showing people what heaven's like. That's what we're supposed to be as the church. Our lives are supposed to be so absolutely marked by the realities of the future that we live our lives now in a new kind of way and the early church had that understanding. Radically changed the way they lived because they thought this way. Okay, so we've already tasted of the life to come. Okay, and the full and final realization of the future is so certain because of the resurrection and the spirit that God's people should become heavenly radicals as they live the already but the not yet in the present existence. And that's what happened. Paul became a heavenly radical, didn't he, in the early church. That's why they're so different from us. It's by living with this perspective that will get us back to living out our faith like the New Testament church did. I'm convinced. If we want to live like the book of Acts, what's the difference? I believe this is a major key. Getting somehow back to this perspective they had, somehow. Because, it, because we are 2,000 years removed. What do we do? We don't have that same sense of urgency, but it's still truth. You see this throughout the scripture. It's still true. And we have to get back to that realization. And that's why this is so important. That's what I'm trying to say. This is so important. Coming to terms with these ideas. Now, I'm just going to end on this. Look at this. Colossians 3, 1 to 4. So how do we do that? Here's a truth to meditate on. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Wait, we have been, past tense, raised with Christ? Yeah, that's how certain it is. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Our hearts are supposed to be set on heaven. Set your minds on things above. Not on earthly things. We're supposed to be so heavenly minded that we actually are earthly good. Is what this is saying. Our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, everything's supposed to be meditating on the fact that we are in heaven, raised with Christ right now, seated at his right hand in the heavenly realm. This says in Ephesians 2. Set your minds on things that was not on earth things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. <laughs> Already the not yet. We need to get back to this perspective. We are God's heavenly people living the future in the present tense, showing people what heaven's like, bringing heaven to earth. And that's what we're called to do by the Spirit. So I'm going to just pray on this. We'll have a time of hospitality. Oh, sure, go for it. Yeah, no, I just remember the first time that David preached this message and from a practical perspective how it influenced me that like when I go and pray for someone for healing or, you know, and believe God for a miracle, that when he comes and you see that, that it's God bringing his kingdom here and now and witnessing and testifying that everything that was available in Jesus is available for everyone now. Right. And it kind of helped because like you don't always see the breakthrough and then you wonder why and you start to focus inwardly like what am I doing wrong or, you know, do I have some kind of wrong belief or, you know, you start analyzing and stuff. But when you see it from this completely like other purpose removed from you being you know, endowed with, like, because God wants to endow you with the Spirit from on high, but why, right? It's like, it's like the purpose of it is to bring his kingdom in the here and now. And so every time you do something practically in his kingdom, it's like, I am, I'm bringing the not yet here in the now, and I'm proclaiming the kingdom of God wherever I go through my actions and by doing these, you know, these works that God has given me to do. So I don't know. 
that makes sense. Sure. Yeah, I'll pray. So God, we just thank you so much for this revelation. We just ask that we would understand the truth of the reality of what time we're living in, God. The already not yet. What you've made provided for us and how we can declare your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, in the here and now, God, that we would not feel limited in any way by this perspective, knowing that you have given us um, more than we could ask or think, and that you have said that we would do greater works than you did while you were on the earth. So we just receive that grace and that power to just walk out the heaven on earth perspective, God. And I just ask you would remind us of it, Holy Spirit, that you'd remind us of our purpose here as kingdom ambassadors, that we are here bringing your kingdom by everything that we do, every time that we speak God's words, every time that we pray for someone for healing, every time that we love someone in a situation, that we are bringing God's kingdom and, and working in the here and now with what you have given to us forever, God. So I just thank you for this for this message, God. I just thank you, and I just ask it would resound in our spirits for days to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Awesome. Woo! Go, husband. So good. I love this message. Um, if it was a bit over your head, we'll probably review it like eight times. So don't worry. <laughs> I kind of have to get a review. We went through this whole thing just like, I think, like similar in the Kingdom of God series. And I'm still like, wait, what? Wait, wait, what? Ow, my brain hurts. So if you're there too, don't worry. Um, if you aren't and you just understood everything, then you're probably really smart. Um, that's good too. <laughs> and so, um, but we're going to be reviewing that and stuff as well and, and just going over it because it's such a powerful message. But yeah, what? I just want to say this. How many of you heard of the vineyard, John Wimber? Did you know this is the message that totally changed his perspective on everything? Already not yet, kingdom of God, bringing the spirit now, doing the stuff. It was this, and he always preached on the kingdom of God. And look how much he impacted the world. Yeah. We're actually uh, a direct descendant, the catch the fire of the vineyard. We used to be part of the vineyard movement. John Wimber had this as such a foundational message, which revolutionized his life. And I'm just saying that because uh, coming to grips with this is so important and so if you are like, what are you talking about and you feel confused, feel free to ask, like come and chat with me. Because my heart is I want people to come from this, I want myself to come from this perspective right. of the already not yet, the urgency that we're living that time here and now. And so if, if you feel like what and you want, you have any questions, I'll just like hang out here and I'd love to chat because um, I'm still trying to grapple with this. Uh, in myself, and I've been, you know, in this for a while, and, and uh, you know, it's, you, you never really arrive, but I have such a feeling of urgency that if we want to be truly impactful in this culture, this age we're living in, this pagan world, really, our culture is so similar to how the pagan culture was in the early church, it's not even funny. The good news is the gospel thrived, didn't it, in that pagan atmosphere? <laughs> Right? So we have nothing to lose. What's going to get us reaching our culture? It's this dimension, this experiential revelation of the kingdom of God. It's all about yeah. kingdom coming now in this pagan world, and we're the alternative as the people of the presence uh, to the pagan idolatry that's happening all around us. And so I'm just saying, um, if you have any questions, I'd love to try and clarify things for you uh, if you felt like this was uh, challenging. But I hope it wasn't. I tried to make it clear. But anyway. No. 
so good. No, not a challenge at all. It's just a good refresher, and it just reminds you you got to go deeper, deeper in the Word, renew our minds with these scriptures. So powerful. And just a reminder that Jesus said, preach the gospel. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And that's what... The gospel of the kingdom, exactly. Yeah, so that's what we're learning. What does it mean to even preach this gospel of the kingdom? And, and I mean, I'm kind of going on and on. It's late. But the only thing, you know, the only other thing I want to add is just that we kind of grow up in our Christian life not knowing really what's the point. It's like, okay, God saved me. He loves me. I'm set free. I want to love people. But it's like, why? You know, and it's like kind of understanding where we are in time helps us understand really the purpose of us as a church and what it means and what it should look like to really bring the kingdom here and now. And so it's like how we fit into God's big masterpiece puzzle he calls love. (laughs) So anyway, God bless you guys and we'll see you next week. And we hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week. And we hope there's lots of good weather and God is good. Hallelujah.